0: Welcome to this Uvila Audio production of The Biggest by award-winning SF writer James Patrick Kelly. The Biggest is a story written about would-be superhero Philbrick Van Loon in an alternate reality version of 1930s New York City. Philbrick Van Loon was, like so many at the time, unemployed. Big, as he liked to be called, had worked for the grocer until his till kept coming up short. After that, he drifted into bootlegging and being a thug for a local loan shark. That all changed when he rescued those people from the burning building. Kelly wrote this short story in response to an invitation from another author, Adam Christopher. Christopher wrote the novel Empire State. Again, Empire State is a parallel universe, prohibition-error world of mooks and shamuses that is the twisted magic mirror of our own bustling Big Apple. A place where sinister characters lurk around every corner while the great superheroes that once kept the streets safe have fallen into dysfunctional rivalries and feuds. Philbrick Van Loon is part of that world. Kelly's tale is one of the best superhero stories around, despite being free online if you care to look for it. And now, The Biggest. Big known to his dear departed mother as Philbrick Van Loon, was startled out of his reverie when a heavy and a cheap gabardine suit dropped into the seat in front of him like a piano falling out of a skyscraper. In his drowsy confusion, Big thought that the train itself had derailed. But as he gathered his wits, he realized that the Empire State Express was pulling out of Union Station, finally headed south to New York City. Guess who I just seen? said the heavy. Can't the woman's voice oozed boredom. Jimmy Cagney The seatback shuddered as the heavy thrashed disagreement. What would Cagney be doing in Albany? Babe Ruth, said his companion. Nope. tin Tin Judge Crater The Governor Roosevelt. Big stopped feeling sorry for himself, and he leaned forward to eavesdrop, although the heavy had a voice they could probably hear in Buffalo. How did you know it was him? Been in the newsreels, hasn't he? Believe me, this is the guy. He could barely walk because of the polio. Big stood and pulled his suitcase off the overhead rack. They say he got better. The woman was still skeptical. If that was better, I'd hate to see worse. Big headed toward the rear of the train. He'd met the governor a couple of months after his inauguration. Everything had seemed possible in the summer of 29, before Black Friday had crashed the country. Now most folk were rubbing pennies together just to buy beans. Big was so broke that the whole of his sad life rattled around in a cardboard suitcase with a busted snap. But maybe this was a sign, Roosevelt being on the train, Maybe the governor could make the sun shine again, at least on Big. It wouldn't hurt to ask. The train's last carriage was an observation car. As the door wheezed shut behind him, Big hesitated, as if he wasn't sure where he was. He announced to no one in particular that he needed some air. Where was the observation porch? A codger in an old-fashioned suit and collar stiffer than Calvin Coolidge glanced up from the Albany Times Union in annoyance. Nobody else seemed to notice him, although Big spotted his quarry in the parlor at the rear of the carriage. They sat in plush armchairs beneath tall windows that were bright with October sun. There appeared to be three in Roosevelt's party besides the governor, two men and a woman. The woman was in her thirties, frail, nervous, handsome maybe, but certainly no looker. She wore a checked dress to the ankles that gave away absolutely nothing. Probably the secretary. A florid man with bug eyes was listening to Roosevelt as if he were explaining the meaning of life or giving the winners for the sixth race at Saratoga. Paul. The other man was hard and square and way too alert. He had big hands and a cop sneer and looked like he would make trouble for anyone who asked. As Big picked his way toward them, balancing his suitcase and catching himself on seats against the swaying of the train the cop rose keep moving polly we're busy here big gave him a nod of understanding then seemed to stumble over the suitcase he caught himself on the cop's shoulder and peered away excuse me governor he said the Paul and the secretary looked up roosevelt kept talking the cop bellied big toward the front of the carriage His hand clamped Big's elbow and began to turn him away. Philbrick Van Loon. Big dropped the suitcase on the cop's foot. We met last summer in Utica, sir. You gave me the Medal of Honor. Then Roosevelt noticed him. Did I? The cop's grip eased and Big stepped around him and extended a hand. Van Loon, said Roosevelt. He wasn't sure, but accepted Big's hand gave it one emphatic shake and was done with it. A fine Dutch name. That's what he'd said the first time they had met. Big remembered now how Big Roosevelt's head was, how his smile went off like a flashbulb, the way the dark pockets sagged under his eyes. It meant a lot to me, sir, being recognized by you, I mean, especially because I voted for you when you ran for vice president. From the smirk on the secretary's face, Big wondered if he'd overplayed his hand. I never got a chance to tell you that. Son, I believe you voted for Governor Cox for president. Roosevelt spoke with elaborate care, as if to a first grader or an alderman. He bent forward to tug at the knees of his trousers, which had ridden up his legs to show the metal braces. I was just filling the ticket. Then he straightened and twinkled it big. Max, make room for Mr. Van Loon here. He waved the cop off. He must remind us of his exploits. The cop glowered from a chair on the other side of the carriage while Big slid in next to the secretary. She gave him a limp nod and introduced herself as Missy LeHand. The poll was Senator Somebody, first name Oscar, or maybe Arthur. So what brings you to the big city, Phil? asked Roosevelt. May I call you Phil? Roosevelt struck him as a man who didn't like to hear the word no, so Big shook his head. "'Sure, Governor. Phil is just fine.' Actually, he hated his name. Sometimes he thought it was the cause of all his troubles. "'Are you coming to see me dedicate the bridge? Fabulous achievement, isn't it?' "'Bridge?' said Big. The secretary was blocking his view of the governor, so he tilted forward to look around her. "'The George Washington Bridge,' Missy said. "'It was all in the papers.' "'Longest span in the entire world.' Roosevelt glanced up at the fake candles on the chrome wall sconces and began to speechify. A mile long. Thirty-five hundred feet, said Missy. Over a half mile long. He held up a finger to note the correction. Six lanes of traffic. Completed five months ahead of schedule for less than the original budget. He seemed to be rehearsing his remarks. Mr. Amon is the engineer and Mr. Gilbert is the architect, yes? Yes, Governor. Now Missy leaned forward once again blocking Big's view. She studied him as if she might need to identify him someday in a police lineup. I bet this one is going to see the monkey, sir, she said. Terrible mess. Senator Somebody was eager to wriggle back into the conversation. And how are they going to pay for the clean-up? That's a matter for Mayor Walker, said Roosevelt. He called in the planes without consulting us. The state bears no responsibility for what happened and will assume none of the financial burden of sorting these things out now. "'Still, Governor,' said the sender, "'when New York sneezes, Albany catches the cold.' "'I will not open the state's coffers to those thieves in Tammany Hall,' Roosevelt flashed his smile. "'However, should the mayor request a Kleenex, I'll be happy to accommodate him.' Big took the cue to laugh, although he realized— His time with the governor must be running out. "'Actually,' he said, "'I was hoping to see the mayor about a job.' "'There are so few jobs.' Roosevelt fitted a Chesterfield into his cigarette holder. "'So many jobless.' "'It's just that now that the Sky Guard and the Science Pirate are gone,' Big continued, "'I was thinking that maybe—' "'You want to take the Sky Guard's place?' The cop's harsh laugh drowned out the train's clatter. The codger glared at them over his paper, and then picked up and left the carriage. "'Just because they're gone, Mr. Van Loon,' said the senator, lighting Roosevelt's cigarette, "'doesn't mean they'll stay gone.' "'Aha! You're that Van Loon!' Roosevelt pointed the holder at Big. "'From Utica! You saved those people in that fire! "'You have some kind of power. What was it again?' He turned to his secretary for the answer, but she just shrugged. Ah, Missy, I don't believe you made that trip. I left in the morning, as I recall, and came back before dinner. Terrible crime problem in Utica. Bootlegging. Rackets. Worst corruption in the state. The Genesee Street fire, sir, said Big. There were eighteen people trapped on the fifth floor. And you rescued them, said Roosevelt, pleased with himself for remembering. The senator frowned. You have some kind of a power? Big nudged his suitcase out of the way with his foot and set himself in the middle of the carriage. He checked the curved ceiling, maybe eight feet. But he could only do what he could. At least he was wearing his baggy suit. He always started by thinking about his feet, hungry muscles and greedy bone. His toes curled inside his shoes to grip imaginary stuff. He felt it flow into him, First his legs went rigid with new substance, and then they grew. Big got taller, slowly at first and then faster, his skin stiffening into a hardened shell to support him. But he was nervous and too eager to impress, so he let the spurt go on too long. He cracked his head against the ceiling, breaking his concentration. Ow, shit! He gazed down at them. He had Missy's attention and could tell the senator was impressed. Are you all right? Roosevelt seemed more concerned than awestruck. When he stopped thinking about getting tall, the stuff flowed back into his imagination. He'd never understood how he did what he did. All he knew was that it was difficult to maintain. His muscles always quivered as they returned to normal, and now, when the train lurched over some bad track, he staggered. The cop was up immediately to catch him. Easy there, Stretch. I'm fine. For a moment, everyone considered what had just happened. Big slumped beside Missy, embarrassed by his swearing. Nice trick, she said. Maybe you should be in Vaudeville. The senator found his voice. What's the biggest you ever been? I touched the roof of the Adirondack Bank building once. Big raised a hand over his head. That's fourteen stories. Incredible. The senator whistled. How do you do it? I really don't know. I just think real hard and it happens. So when you're that tall, you must be able to cover ground in a hurry, said Roosevelt. Big strides and all. Our very own Paul Bunyan, Missy said. Big flushed, but her grin was more flirting than teasing. Actually, moving is hard, he shook his head. My muscles lock, And my legs get all stiff, and... His voice trailed off in embarrassment when he remembered he was talking to a man who needed a cane, leg braces, and a helper to go to the john. That's all right, son. I understand perfectly. The governor reset his pince-nez glasses on his nose. So about this job you're looking for? I thought maybe I could help the police, you know, fighting crime like the Skyguard. That stuff sure didn't fight crime. The cop bolted from his chair again. Oh, sure, maybe him and the science pirate busted a few bootleggers, and they chased those jewel thieves. But did they catch them? No. Then robots came and busted into the Metropolitan Museum. Were there robots before these superheroes showed up? No. Next, they're fighting each other. He realized everybody was staring. We don't need that kind of help. His voice fell and his arm dropped. Worse than the crook's. "'I heard their last fight put some bystanders in the hospital,' said the senator. "'Tore up Park Avenue so bad they had to close it between 32nd and 36th.' "'But think of the people it put to work,' said Missy. Roosevelt smiled. "'I'm not so sure we can support that kind of jobs program.' "'Take your crime-fighting upstate stretch,' said the cop, "'where there's nothing but squirrels and trees.' "'Oh, pay no attention to him.' Missy's stagey whisper was sweet in his ear. That one's just mad because this is supposed to be his day off. Nuts to you, the cop muttered. Was he mistaken, or was she making eyes at him? Max has a point, Phil. Roosevelt tapped Ash into a tray set on a chrome pedestal. There's not much coal for that line of work. Do you have any police experience? That was not a question he'd been eager to hear. No, sir. What did you do back in Utica? I was unemployed. A moment passed, and then another. They waited for him to go on, but Big had nowhere to go. Unemployed? Prompted the senator. Your entire life? I worked for the A&P. Actually, he'd lost that job when he was 14. Stocking shelves mostly. I ran the register sometimes. He'd gotten fire when his cash drawer had been light three times in two weeks. After that, he'd fallen in with Happy Reagan and his gang and had worked his way up from lookout to driver and finally to the bootlegger's main muscle man. When you got really, really tall, deadbeats crap silver dollars. It wasn't much of a job when they laid me off, and then my mother got the consumption and I had to stay with her most days. She died just last month. I'm sorry for your loss. Roosevelt's expression was polite but distracted. "'Missy, however, was clearly touched. "'Anyway, there was nothing holding me home, "'and after saving those folks from the fire "'and getting the medal and all, "'I thought maybe I might try my luck in the big city.' "'He took a deep breath and made his play. "'I was wondering if maybe you could help, sir. "'I'd really appreciate it.' "'Roosevelt pulled the stub of his cigarette out of its holder. "'Well, you must understand, "'I'm not exactly on the best of terms with the mayor.' and all the jobs worth having come out of Tammany Hall, not City Hall. He snuffed it in the ashtray. Walker dances when Boss Curry twitches his strings. He tucked the holder into the vest pocket of his jacket. I've been at odds with Tammany in the past, but there's a kind of truce at the moment. We've been doing each other little favors. You spoke at the dedication of the new hall, said Missy. And I've invited Curry and Flynn and McCooey to Hyde Park. "'he considered. "'You mustn't bother with John Curry, though. "'Not that he'd be likely to see you anyway. "'Missy, do you have one of my cards?' "'She retrieved a briefcase. "'Take yourself down to the new building,' said Roosevelt. "'Just off Union Square. "'See Jimmy Dooling. "'I don't know what kind of work you can do, Phil, "'but show him my card. "'He may be able to help.' "'Missy took a gilt fountain pen from her purse "'and scrawled something on the back of the card.' Roosevelt, Missy, and the Senator all had the same bland expression, as if they were doing times tables in their heads. Big took the hint. This was how quality got rid of the likes of him. Big picked up his suitcase. Thank you, sir. He took the card from Missy. Best of luck, Will. Come to the dedication tomorrow. Big pushed through the observation car, so excited he kept walking until he ran out of train, it was only when he sat down again he saw what Missy Lahand had written on the back of the card. Waldorf, 9.30. Tammany Hall was half an hour's walk down Park Avenue from Grand Central Station. As he passed 34th Street, Big caught a glimpse of the crowd pressing around the Empire State Building, but didn't stop. Although the bricks of the new Tammany Hall looked like they had just come out of the kiln and the white limestone trim gleamed, the architecture was supposed to be old-fashioned, as if George Washington had slept there, or at least stopped in for a sandwich. The lobby boiled with men of every shape and flavor, sweet and sour, rough and smooth, wearing plus fours or boiler suits, caps or fedoras. Big was directed to the third floor. At the desk in front of James Dooling's office, a woman sat reading a copy of Photoplay with a picture of Joan Crawford on the cover. His mother used to read Photoplay when he could afford the quarter to buy one for her. This woman looked nothing like poor, shriveled Thelma Van Loon. She was wearing a slinky silver dress. Her dark hair was cut in a bob, and her eyebrows were plucked to the verge of extinction. It was a secretary. If she was a secretary, then Big was the Queen of Norway. Excuse me, said Big. She turned to page as if he hadn't spoken. I'm looking for James Dooling. A couple of men in suits were waiting on the bench opposite the desk. One of them leaned forward. The other one chuckled. That's funny. The woman kept reading. So am I. Will he be back anytime soon? If he figures out I'm here waiting to kill him. She shook her head. No chance. Big couldn't think what to say to that. Can I make an appointment? Not with me. Now both of the men were laughing. Big could feel the back of his neck burn. The governor sent me. I have his card. Do you? She looked up from her magazine then and winked at the men on the bench. Let me guess. Is it the deuce of clubs? big thought about telling her off, but for all he knew, she might be Dueling's mistress or even his wife. Okay then, thanks for nothing. He was halfway down the stairs when he heard somebody call, Hey, buddy. The man from the bench was tall and built like a stevedore. He was wearing a silky double-breasted jacket with just the bottom buttons done and straight-legged trousers that were too wide of the cuff. His tie was bubblegum pink, The name isn't Buddy, it's Big. Mickey McCabe.
1: They shook hands. Look, I've been waiting on Jimmy for an hour myself, and I'm ready to give up. You have the look of a drinking man, if you don't mind my saying so. How about we drown our sorrows? Any friend of Franklin Roosevelt is a friend I'd like to make. You buyin'? You bet, Big. He grinned. I buy and sell.
0: The Old Town Bar was near the quarter of 18th and
1: Park. "'Boss Curry watches over this place,' McCabe said as he held the glass door. "'So you can get served, if you know how to ask.' Behind the
0: storefront windows was a long room with a tin-tiled ceiling, black from smoke. To the right were booths. to the left were plate-glass mirrors behind a mahogany bar that stretched the entire length of the room.
1: 55 feet.'
0: McCabe knocked on the bar's marble top as they walked toward the back. He and the barkeep exchanged nods. The further into the room they went, the darker it was, despite the green tulip-shaped lamps. They slid into a booth and a waiter appeared out of the gloom. Afternoon, Mr.
1: McCabe. Afternoon, Pete. We'll have a couple of ham sandwiches.
0: He nodded at Big. You hungry, yeah? Big nodded. There was something familiar about McCabe even though he was certain he'd never met the man. And around, said his new friend, and the waiter evaporated.
1: So, Big, what brings you to the
0: city? Looking for a job, he nodded. What's your line of work? Big surveyed the bar. There were maybe twenty customers. How high would you say the ceiling is here? Dunno, McCabe cocked his head and squinted.
1: Fifteen feet,
0: twenty? Big slid out of the booth, raised an arm over his head, and extended his index finger. He grinned at McCabe. Then he got tall. He concentrated on keeping most of the stuff below his knees so as not to split his pants. When his finger touched the ceiling, he wrote T-H-E-S-T-I-L-T in the soot and shrank back to normal. As he strolled through the bar, Minutes before, Big had caught snatches of a dozen conversations, some hushed, some raucous, more than a few profane. Now there was only reverent silence, as if Pope Pius himself had bought around for the house. Then the bartender started clapping, and then everyone was cheering, and McCabe pulled him back into the booth.
1: How the hell did you do that?
0: Big explained, or tried to. Then the drinks came. He and McCabe, Touch glasses, and knock back a couple of shots of something that was clear as water and deadly as sin. He felt it knife down his throat, and then take a slice off the back of his skull. What's this supposed to be? He tried not to sputter. Gin? My dear old
1: Da called it poteen. McCabe thumped his empty glass on the table. Me, I like to think of it as flavored fire. So let me get this straight. You could grow a hundred feet tall.
0: No, no, more. But you can't move much. He settled back on his bench.
1: What happens to your clothes when you get that big?
0: Big unsnapped his suitcase. I had this costume made, kind of like the Sky Guards. He pulled the suit out and held it up by the shoulders. Knit elastic so it stretches. He admired the stilt's royal blue fabric and yellow piping the stylized yellow ladder on the chest. He thought about adding a cape, but just this much had cost him his last dollar. McCabe was dubious.
1: That stretches a hundred feet?
0: No, Big flushed. I only get really tall in emergencies. He considered,
1: then his face lit up. You bust out of your suit? He had a good laugh. Damn, big as the Statue of Liberty and butt naked.
0: Big stared at the gouge of the tabletop. The problem with the clothes was what had kept him in Utica all these years.
1: Don't look so glum, pal.
0: McCabe reached across to punch his shoulder. That'll get your picture in the paper for certain, he chuckled.
1: But I don't get the latter.
0: It's my symbol. Big folded the costume and slipped it back of the suitcase. Okay. It goes with my crime-fighting name. He nodded at what he'd written on the ceiling. The stilt.
1: Like it? What's a ladder got to do with stilts?
0: The food arrived. A thick slice of ham, Swiss cheese, and brown mustard, unseeded rye, with a half pickle on the side. The waiter asked if they wanted anything else, and McCabe slid both empty glasses toward him for refills.
1: So why work for the law? Percentage is on the other side, if you ask me.
0: Big understood then what he'd recognized in McCabe. His familiarity with the speakeasy wasn't just because he was a regular customer. This is your place.
1: I own a piece of it, sure. Try the pickle.
0: McCabe bit into his sandwich. Been on the other side, said Big. It got kind of hot. Thought so. He spoke around a mouthful and then swallowed.
1: I can tell these things, Big. It's a gift. But look, your problem is that nobody's going to hire you to fight crime in this town. I mean, look at what the law is against. A drink to take your mind off your troubles. A woman to remind you why you're alive. A friendly game to change your luck. We're grown men, Big. What are we supposed to do on a Saturday night? Play tiddlywinks? The Sky
0: and the Science Pirate went after bank robbers.
1: Bank robbers? He wiped his mouth on the back of his hand. You sat through too many matinees, pal. Look, those two costume slickers weren't on anybody's payroll. Self-employed, all the way upper class, and in it for themselves. He tapped the side of his nose. Just between us, I could find work for a guy with your talents. But it sure wouldn't be crime-fighting. No, sir.
0: Seeing the look on Big's face, he held his hands up to surrender.
1: Okay. Just laying out options. You want my advice? Before you try Jimmy Dooling again, do something amazing. Let him open his morning paper and see how big you can be.
0: They were finishing lunch when the second round arrived. McCabe toasted big.
1: To the stilt. Stand tall, pally. They drank. Tell the truth now
0: he said, eyeing Big over the edge of his glass. You
1: don't really have Roosevelt's card, do you?
0: Big fished it out of his pocket and held it so McCabe could read only the front.
1: They say he's going to run for president,
0: McCabe said. Big shrugged. He didn't have any use for politics. He'd be a fool not to. McCabe dropped a quarter on the table for a tip. Even
1: I could beat Hoover. Republicans turn everything to shit. He leaned forward. But that card is no good at Tammany, my friend. Boss Curry hates Roosevelt, even though they're making nice just now. You keep it handy, though. It'll really impress the cops.
0: When they stood to go, McCabe turned from Big to address his customers.
1: Hey, you huckleberries, listen up. The bar went silent. This here is the stilt. Next time you hear it, remember, you met him here at the old town.
0: He couldn't see the Empire State Building as he walked uptown, because the buildings on park blocked his view. He knew he was gawking like a hick from Utica. Twice he bumped into other pedestrians. The day's ups and downs had left him lightheaded, and when he patted the card in his pocket, the thought of Missy LeHand and what might happen at the Waldorf Astoria at 9.30 burned his brain like McCabe's hooch. His mother always used to say that there was no place for the likes of him in the big city. But she was gone now and he was determined to prove her wrong. More had happened to him in eight hours than had happened in Utica in the past eight years. He'd met Roosevelt but missed dueling. McCabe had tried to pull him back into the nightmare and then pointed toward Big's most cherished dream. It wasn't enough to get tall. Big needed to be as amazing as this city where the windows glowed with promise and every other door opened into a new world. If only he could stumble upon a hold-up or a fire, or a garbo dangling from a skyscraper. And then he turned down 34th Street. For the first time since he'd discovered his power, Big felt tiny. If he got as tall as he'd ever been, he might be able to peer to the windows of the first setback of the Empire State Building. But that wouldn't be even one-fifth its height. The Adirondack Bank in Utica was a fireplug compared to this super building. He slowed, in part from awe, and in part because of the smell. By the time he reached Madison Avenue, it was like cramming barbed wire up his nose. He tried to untangle all of the stink's evil strands. Rotting meat? Yeah. Shit straight from hell. Okay. But something cooked, no, burnt, like an electrical fire or failing brakes. This last strand of the smell was fresh and sharp. Just past Madison, the crowd swarmed the street and both sidewalks. Some, like him, pressed ahead to see the spectacle. Others stumbled away from it, faces ashen, eyes bulging and wet. Big had to tiptoe around splashes of vomit on the street. How long had that monster lain sprawled at the base of the Empire State Building? A week? Ten days? He'd read that the first crowds had brought Midtown to a standstill. That had been before the enormous corpse began to putrefy. Still, there were hundreds of people surging around him, holding hats against their faces or breathing through scarves. Big buried his nose in the crook of his elbow and eavesdropped
1: hundred feet tall, at least. Yeah, but that
0: don't include... Happy now? Walked across the bridge for this? A crew of workers lashed a forty-foot-long arm onto one of the two logging trucks parked in front of the body. Black fingers curled at one end. The exposed flesh of the other was purplish-gray. A fire engine idled nearby. Firemen hosed the foul, runny puddles that had oozed from the severed arm into the sewer. A punishment. Giant apes and flying pirates and lightning men. Kid, slice that arm right off. Punishment for what? The body had landed on its back. The head was still on the torso, but both legs were gone and the other dangled, almost severed. The shaggy black pelt was charred at the shoulders and there were savage burn holes in the chest. Construction equipment lined up beside what was left of the monster a sling hung from the hook of a waiting crane two of the biggest bulldozers he'd ever seen strained against the corpse their blades riding up its side and treads chewing asphalt as they failed to get purchase what are they trying to do turn him over maybe get that sling under you saw the lightning guy Shot down out of the clouds crack maybe half an hour ago
1: Another damn superhero.
0: Lightning strikes don't come down, Mabel. They shoot up. You're crazy. Excuse me. Big's heart was pounding. Did you say something about a superhero? Mabel was a short woman in a pillbox hat made of feathers. Sure. He was just here. Sear the arm right off with his lightning. Just like that. A companion, an older man wearing a trilby and a silk scarf, snapped his fingers. What they say his name was bobby was it billy bolt said another man kid blasted holes in the chest looked like he was having fun then he took the one arm but couldn't finish the other turned himself back into lightning said the older man amazing just a kid mabel blinked up at big she was wearing too much mascara he'll be back do you think so he looked kind of dazed Probably has to recharge or something. Big spotted a reporter with his notebook working the crowd. Cameras flashed near the monster, although he couldn't see the shutterbugs. He should have known he wouldn't be the only one to take advantage of the disappearance of the Sky Guard and the Science Pirate. A kid who can change himself into lightning? Big didn't have much time. He threaded his way to the uptown sidewalk, scanning the storefronts. Newsstand, drugstore, laundry, bank... He chose Mendy's Deli. Nobody would be eating in this stench.
1: Bathrooms for customers only,
0: said the board counterman. Telephone, Big pointed. Gotta make a call. His suitcase caught on the folding wooden door, and Big had to stand it on end in order to squeeze into the phone booth. When he pulled the doors closed, there wasn't room to get the suitcase all the way open. He twisted the stilt suit out, stripped naked and wriggled into it. Then he took a deep breath. He realized his life up until that moment had been nothing but a warm-up. Now he was putting himself into the game. He struggled out of the phone booth and planted his feet to get tall. He would practiced this trick back home, sending the stuff so that his torso expanded while his legs stayed normal. Only his bare feet hardened with stuff. That way he could run. He winked at the astonished counterman and bent nearly double to fit through the door. Big had gotten tall in front of people before, but never while wearing the costume. The stilt stood fourteen, maybe fifteen feet. The suit stretched perfectly. When he started for the corpse, the crowd parted for him. He could feel their eyes on him. Their astonishment was intoxicating. People called to him, shouted, shrieked. A teenage girl screamed. He jumped the police cordon and strode across the open space between the crowd and the dead monster. A beat cop came forward to stop him. You can't
1: come this way,
0: he gestured for the stilt to turn around. You just crossed a police line, chum. Afternoon, officer, the stilt called. I'm here to help. What did I do to deserve this? The cop placed himself in the stilt's way. You and that other freak, the kid. Nope, it's just me. He took smaller steps so as not to alarm the cop but did not stop his approach name is the stilt another cop came running clamping his hat down on his head he was maybe 30 yards away just got a call from the firehouse to come down and lend a hand with the cleanup the way the stilt had figured it he might confuse one cop but two would be trouble the first cop had his hand on his colt but the holster's safety strap was still buckled The stilt slowed as if he meant to halt and imagine stuff flowing into his legs. He shot up another five feet. The cop's eyes went wide, but he did not give way. This won't take long, the stilt said.
1: Mister, I...
0: He stepped over the cop without breaking stride, clearing the man's head by a good two feet. He let some stuff go to his legs and started running again toward the monster. He did not look back. He came from behind the two bulldozers, so that the operators didn't see him until he stood between them. One wore a gas mask that looked like it might have seen action in the Great War. The other had a red bandana over his mouth and nose, and the engineer's cap pulled low on his forehead so that only his eyes showed. The stilt saluted, and the engineer goggled, then slammed his machine in neutral. Gas masks followed suit. "'I'm here to help!' shouted the stilt. The engineer cupped his hand over his ear and shook his head. The stilt made a scooping motion, and the engineer cut the engine of his machine. The stilt leaned into the cab. Can I try something? Buddy, be my guest. We're just wasting diesel here. I'm going to lift it up, said the stilt. You and what army? The stilt smiled. Can somebody put a sling under it? The engineer considered clearly full of doubt. Then he shrugged. Won't be the craziest thing I've seen today. He gestured for Gas to shut down. I'll tell the crane, he said, and began to climb off the dozer. The stilt let all the stuff flow out of him until he was natural size. Standing next to the dead monster, he rolled the sleeves of his costume above his elbows. The stink here was strong enough to bring tears to a statue. He could feel something gluey, squished between his toes. He turned his head to one side and took a desperate breath and leaned into the corpse, with arms down, palms brushing against the thick hair of the pelt. His toes curled and stuff began to surge into him through the concrete sidewalk, summoned from the granite spine beneath the city. His feet were no longer flesh as they anchored into the city's bedrock. His arms stretched and burrowed beneath the dead weight of the corpse. His skin thickened into an impenetrable shell. Stuff clotted his chest, slowed his heart, reinforced his backbone. Chin pressed hard against the body. He tried not to think about the smell. When he'd saved the people in Utica, he hadn't had time to think. He hadn't noticed when his clothes shredded from his grotesque body. He hadn't minded the searing heat of the fire, and it didn't matter whether the crowd swarming like ants below him had been cheering, or laughing at his bare ass. Back then he'd been able to focus on the men and women climbing across his arms, clinging to his neck, weeping with gratitude. But he hadn't been the stilt in Utica. He'd been Philbrick Van Loon, a thug who didn't earn enough collecting a bootlegger's debts to pay for the doctors his dying mother needed. He'd been a man who could save strangers, but not the only person in the world who loved him. The memory made the stilt angry. He tapped that anger to pull more and more stuff into himself, getting bigger and stronger. His heart hardened and now his thoughts grew sluggish and stony as the monster tilted and began to lift off the street. He was the stilt. Yes. Stilt got tall. Stilt was. Hold it there, pal! Hold what? Stilt didn't have any pals. Stop! You hear me? No higher. The stilt couldn't see anything but coarse hair and gray skin. With a groan, he turned his head. The engineer and the gas mask, and some cops and firemen and construction workers were frantically working the sling down the length of the corpse. The stilt couldn't smell anything anymore; his nose filled with stuff. Okay, let it go. The stilt didn't understand let who go his mother that secretary he couldn't remember missing missy wake up big guy let go there's something wrong with him he can't hear us hit the siren a high and low metallic yowling as if of a machine in pain the furious clatter of bells penetrated the crust squeezing the stilt's brain Stuff began to flow away. He could think again, and his first thought was, he had done it. He was amazing. They took what seemed like hundreds of pictures. He got 10, 15, 30 feet tall. He presented arms folded, boxer at the ready, and muscle man poses, then filled the five-story entrance to the Empire State Building for them. He spelled his name for the reporters from the Daily Mirror and the Evening Post, told them how he'd chosen his superhero identity, and explained the latter on his costume. He glossed over his recent past since he didn't want anyone talking to the cops in Utica. The engineer asked for his autograph, his first ever. He printed it, The Stilt. He gave a kid a ride on his shoulders, although the brat held his nose the entire time. Yet, for all that, the stilt's debut went nothing like Big had imagined it would. This was not a crime he'd foiled, after all. More like garbage he'd collected. His costume was stained and he smelled like hell's own outhouse, which meant that the crowd, with the exception of the kid, shied away. No pretty girls offered to kiss him, and he signed just the one autograph. Then, as he was telling his story all over again to the reporter from The Times, There was a flash of light in the no man's land between the monster and the crowd followed closely by what sounded like an explosion he turned to see a teenager wearing a white lab coat white shirt blue necktie and doughboy helmet painted blue to match the kid staggered and fell to hands and knees in a circle of smoldering asphalt when he shook himself and got up big could see crude white lightning bolts painted on the helmet The kid glanced from the butchered corpse sprawled on the crippled truck to Big and his face twisted with anger. The Times reporter waved, but Billy Bolt gave him the finger. Then he began to glitter and turned into a million snowflakes of light, which burst into light and sound. He left only a bright blue afterimage and a ringing in Big's ears. Maybe he was supposed to be insulted or jealous or scared, but Big's only thought was that the kid's costume needed work. There was a cop in Mendy's deli taking a statement from the angry clerk. Both turned when Big came through the door. You! The clerk looked like he was ready to leap across the counter to throttle Big. This is your fault. Huh? Are you saying this is the thief? The cop glowered as if sizing Big up for handcuffs. I'm saying this is the freak who put on the damn show, and I'm the lunkhead who left the watch. "'Do you know anything about this, sir?' "'About what?' "'My till is empty, and three Westphalian hands gone!' The counterman was shouting now. "'I've been robbed!' So had Big. The phone booth was empty. The thief must have used the suitcase to carry off his swag. Big had lost everything he owned. The cop listened to his story, but didn't seem much interested. He jotted Big's name in a notebook."
1: Mister, you can't
0: be leaving valuables in phone booths. He raised the notebook to his face as if to ward off Big Stink. Not in this town, anyway. Well, what am I going to do? said Big. I'm new in town, and now I'm broke. I've got no place to go. Try the poorhouse. The cop snapped the notebook shut. It was almost dark by the time Big got in line at 432 East 25th Street. On the way, he'd clipped a flannel shirt and bib overalls with a patch on one knee from a clothesline strung across a four-story fire escape. He thought they made him look like a rag picker. He wadded his reeking costume and clamped it under his arm as the line moved up the front steps of the municipal lodging house. The frayed man at the reception table, wanted to send him to the registration bureau at South Ferry until he saw that Big was barefooted. So he took Bigg's particulars. Philbrick Van Loon, age 33, born Oriskany, New York, lived 33 years in the United States, lived six hours in New York City, last address, 12 Faxton Street, Utica, New York. Occupation, none. Military service, none not married, no relatives to contact in case of emergency. They sent him to the mess hall where he dipped sliced bread into a bowl of beef stew that was mostly carrots and potatoes and onions. After dinner, he traded his stolen clothes and his costume for a brass chit embossed with a number 48. His things were taken away to be disinfected. They'd be returned in the morning. They gave him and the other homeless men towels and nightshirts. The shower was lukewarm, but Big stood under it, scrubbing until his skin stung. Afterwards, he climbed into the lower of a double-decked iron bed. He got a folded blanket to sleep on instead of a mattress, and another blanket for cover. But the dormitory was warm, and it didn't matter if his bunkmate snored. Big couldn't sleep anyway. He lay awake thinking of all the things he'd ever done wrong, the money he'd stolen, the men he'd beaten up. He thought of his mother and what she'd say if she could see him now. He wished he had a drink. Just one tumbler of Happy Reagan's phony whiskey or Mickey McCabe's poteen would have turned the world right side up. He should never have left the suitcase in the phone booth. The Sky Guard would never have done anything that stupid. And he would never have seen the inside of a poorhouse probably lived in one of those mansions facing Central Park. If only Big still had Roosevelt's card. He imagined Missy LeHand waiting for him in the lobby of the Waldorf Astoria. And the more he thought about her, the more glamorous and beautiful and distant she became. She'd be wearing an evening dress. It would be silvery and show her shoulders. She'd be sipping champagne. A nobody like him would be crazy to chase a girl like her. Except that she had chased him. He left right after breakfast because he had a lot of ground to cover. He was almost ten miles to Washington Heights. They had found him a pair of brown wingtip shoes that were almost the right size. He wore his costume under his clothes. On the way uptown, he stole a copy of the Times from a newsstand and found a daily mirror in the trash at a bus stop. He was disappointed to see that the Times didn't have photographs. At least they spelled his name right on page two. He made the front page of the mirror under a caption, Stilt Man Dumps Ape. It took him most of the morning to hike to the new bridge, and as he climbed the ramp, he discovered that half of Manhattan had turned out for the dedication. He threaded through several marching bands that were forming up into a parade on the entrance ramp. Big strode down the center lane, scanning the temporary bleachers on either side of the bridge for Missy or Roosevelt. He hadn't worked out much of a plan besides showing up. They must have read about him in the papers. That would give him something to talk about. Maybe he could have his picture taken with the governor, meet some of the other swells. At the least, he could ask Roosevelt for another card, and Missy for another chance. Evergreen garlands, and American flags draped the dignitary's podium. Roosevelt wore a formal three-piece suit and a top hat. A white carnation glowed on his lapel. His smile was even brighter. Big paused and started to unbutton the stolen shirt. He was planning on getting tall before he made his final approach as the stilt. But Missy came out of nowhere and caught his arm. Button yourself up right now, Mr. Van Loon. Missy, I can explain. "'Walk with me.' She threw all of her weight into marching him past the podium toward New Jersey. "'It wasn't my fault,' she seemed not to hear. "'Did you see I made the papers?' She picked up the pace. Finally, when they were past the bleachers and onto the central span, she stopped. "'You went to see the monkey instead of me.' She was as cool as a cloudy Saturday in October. "'Why am I not surprised?' It wasn't that way at all. No. He told her everything, more than he intended to. He told her about McCabe and picking up the monster and the smell and the missing suitcase and the stolen clothes and the iron bed at the municipal lodging house. He said he'd spent most of the night thinking about her waiting for him. I didn't wait. I was back in my room by 9.35, she said. Well, that's good he said, although he knew it wasn't. But you asked me to come, and I wanted to be there. That's why I'm here now. I thought that maybe you and I... There is no you and I. But you wrote on the card. We read the papers this morning. I had to remind Franklin that we just met you. He has a lot on his mind. Real problems, not your foolishness. He looked back at the podium. He's going to run for president, you know. I'm his secretary, and his wife doesn't live with him. There's nothing between us, romantically." The words seemed to stick in her throat. But people talk. It helps if I'm seen in public with other men. Big felt as empty as he'd ever been. He thought if he didn't get tall soon he might blow away. "'Do you think he might give me another card?' he said. She never got the chance to answer. Big didn't see the flash but the thunderclap made him jump. He looked up at the tower of exposed steel on the New York side and saw a figure in white bounce and land on one of the two downstream suspension cables. He could hear an ugly sizzling. The fluffy clouds above them twisted and darkened as if stained by sin. The sky turned green. What was the kid trying to do? Land in front of Roosevelt's podium and introduce himself? "'Too much steel for that. "'Had the kid even seen the bridge before? "'There was a lightning strike on the tower "'that seemed to skitter down the cable "'to the writhing figure of Billy Bolt. "'His helmet flew off, and he caught fire. "'The next flash cut a suspender cable "'directly beneath him. "'It tipped over the edge of the bridge. "'People poured out of the stands, "'shouting and screaming. "'One last lightning bolt skewered the burning boy, "'knocking him off the bridge.' severing one of the two main cables. Big could feel the deck of the bridge shudder. They were doomed unless the stilt did something amazing. He climbed onto a support truss at the edge of the bridge. The river was impossibly far beneath him. He'd have to get as tall as he'd ever been. What are you doing? Missy was behind him. I'll try to jump, but if I can't, you'll have to push me. It was hard to imagine the stuff with her there. I think I can hold the bridge up. What? No. You want him to be president? His feet burst out of the wingtips and the overalls split at the crotch. No, I mean you're already too big. How am I supposed to push you? The stilt was 20 feet tall and growing. Go get help then. He concentrated on his legs. He thought if he was bottom heavy, he would sink upright to the bottom of the river. He never knew how he came off the bridge. Maybe he stepped off, even though his legs were stoned. He fell forever, all the while losing stuff. He thought he saw the top of the Empire State Building. Were there really roller coasters all along the Palisades? Then came a giant slap as he hit the water, followed by a nightmare of darkness, cold, silence, and no air. The bottom was the cruelest shock of all because he believed he was already dead. Then his head broke the surface of the river. In a panic, the stilt got very tall, very fast, faster than he had ever grown, taller than was possible. Still, he had to raise his arms over his head to reach the bottom of the bridge, but he did it. And then he was naked in front of all of New York and New Jersey and Missy LeHan, and maybe the future president of the United States but the stilt was beyond embarrassment. The stuff filled his head, squeezing his imagination flat, turning his brain to stone. His last thought was that his mother had been wrong. He was amazing. From Wikipedia, The Free Encyclopedia. Philbrick Van Loon, 1898, 1931. Also known as Stiltman, was an American superhero who had the ability to grow to enormous heights. Scientists at the Carson Institute theorized he was able to accomplish this by manipulating his molecular structure. Born in Utica, New York, little is known of his life before his arrival in New York City in October 1931. In one 24-hour period, He managed to remove the body of King Kong from where it had fallen from the Empire State Building and attempt to hold up the George Washington Bridge after it was damaged in a freak electrical storm. Othmar Aman, chief engineer of the bridge, has stated that its structure was never compromised and that Van Loon's sacrifice, while well-intentioned, was unnecessary. For undetermined reasons, Van Loon was unable to recover from his final transformation. His solidified body stands today, 247 feet from the bed of the Hudson River to the bottom deck of the bridge. This superhero-related article is a stub. You can help Wikipedia by expanding it.